Hi, guys. Uh, this is God's Hat for the Sad Truth. Just came back from a family vacation to Portugal. This is why I'm even more handsome than my usual self. Today, I have a fantastic guest to uh, spearhead the uh, the next group of guests. I've got Dr. Miriam Grossman, who is an MD. Uh, she's a psychiatrist, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Uh, before I cede the floor to you, Miriam, some of your previous books include Unprotected, a Campus Psychiatrist Reveals How Political Correctness in Her Profession Endangers Every Student. That came out in 2007, so you were already at the forefront of warning us. Then your uh, other book, you're, you're Teaching My Children What? A Physician Exposes the Lies of Sex Ed and How They Harm Your Child. That came out a few years after that. And the book to be released tomorrow, we're all very excited by it, Lost in Transnation, love that title, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. Miriam, welcome. Please tell us what the book is about. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor. I'm a fan of yours as well. Um, well, yeah, I think, thank you for mentioning those previous books. Uh, it's important because I actually did warn parents all the way back in 2009 of this uh, uh, dangerous belief system I call it a belief system uh, of transgenderism. And I warned uh, parents that this was already baked into our uh, sexuality uh, education system. And that even all the way back then in 2009 and earlier, so that's before the current crop, most of the current crop of kids who are now impacted by the social hysteria were even born. And unfortunately, it took this uh, catastrophe that we are currently in to uh, for people to begin waking up and realizing, hey, maybe we shouldn't be telling our kids that there's such a thing as being born in the wrong body. Maybe there's really no medical or scientific basis to that idea. And uh, so my current book is based on my experience of the past few years in which I've been seeing these uh, kids who are distressed about their bodies, their sex, being a boy or a girl, and their parents. And I've talked to hundreds of parents who have now gone through this, and they have all told me that they are blindsided by it. They did not expect, it's the last thing they expected, in fact, in many cases, for their child to come to them, their boy to come and say, you know, mom, dad, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. I want, you don't have a son, you have a daughter. I want you to use this new name and these pronouns, and I want to be placed on puberty blockers and estrogen. And parents tell me that they were just shocked. They didn't understand where this was coming from. They uh, got up and made an appointment at a gender clinic. They go into the gender clinic and the gender clinic just rubber stamps the child's new identity. No deep psychiatric evaluation, no close look at the history. Does this child have uh, autism? Is this child suffering from depression, anxiety, ADHD? Is there a history of trauma? All these basic 
fundamental questions that we are supposed to ask every single patient who walks in our offices. And yet this was not done. Their child was placed in the driver's seat and whatever the child requested, whether it's blockers or whatever pronouns, uh, parents are supposed to go along with it or else. The or else meaning, as you probably know what I'm going to say, right? And your audience knows what I'm going to say, which is that parents are threatened if they don't go with this narrative and accept their son as their daughter, their daughter as their son, well, their child very well might commit suicide. Wow. So, okay. And so these parents... Go ahead, go ahead. Finish your point. I just want to say these parents are in a terrible position. It's a Sophie's Choice kind of a thing. Because each option is bad. The option of uh, resisting uh, the new identity uh, might lead, they're led to believe, to suicide. But the option of accepting uh, the new persona and celebrating it, which is what they're told to do, and saying goodbye and burying, you know, burying the idea of that they have a son or a daughter, that's also unacceptable because they know they know it's true. And so that's the position they're in. So what the book Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Okay, finish your point now. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, just okay, it'd be better so, if we go back and forth as quick. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Finish finish your no, point. No, we can go back and forth. Okay, so I, what I was gonna say is so we we can agree, and certainly as a psychiatrist, you you'd concede that you know we we've known that there is such a thing as gender dysphoria. I think the the key issue is that if it if we understood it to be one in ten thousand or whatever the operative number is, it certainly can't be that forty percent of Brown students, Brown University students, are now suddenly LGBT. Right. So so the the key so no one is contesting the fact that that a that a human being could suffer from gender dysphoria, correct? Absolutely. Gender dysphoria is real, it is debilitating, and we've known about it for, you know, at least 100 years. So the question is that it's become a, a, a social contagion. And the question then becomes, what accelerated that? What So in, in the context of the framework of my last book, The Parasitic Mind, as you, you may or may not know, what I argue in that book, having been a professor for now almost 30 years, is that there is a set of parasitic ideas, which I call idea pathogens, of which trans activism would be one, social constructivism, right? Everything is due to a social construction would be another one. Biophobia, the fear of using biology to explain human affairs would be another one. And so what I try to do in my book is argue, well, what makes these idea pathogens so alluring that they can then you know, be internalized by people and spread. So from your perspective, what is it that caused the trans activism that we see today? What, what is the catalyst of all this? Okay, sure. I want to just go back one moment to something sure. that you said. For sure, there is such a thing as gender dysphoria, an intense discomfort with one's physically sexed body. Uh, and those individuals are extremely rare. As you mentioned, I mean, up until 10 or 15 years ago, the data that we had was so scarce because these individuals were so rare, one in many tens of thousands of people. 
However, I think it's important to state that even if a person has intense uh, gender dysphoria and they decide to live as the opposite sex, it does not mean that they actually are the opposite sex. And I think that's important to say. Uh, you know, we have a physical reality here. And uh, I think it's dangerous to try and escape that physical reality and say that what you feel like you are in your mind means that that's what you are, because where is the end to that? I mean, I love Italy. I love Italian food. I would love to speak it. I mean, am I Italian? No, there's no way that I'm Italian. I wish that I had blue eyes. Blue eyes is more beautiful. I identify as a blue-eyed person. Does that give me blue eyes? No. God, I think that that is an important point to make, and I don't know how you feel about it, but especially now when we are, as you're getting to this idea of, 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 of the pathogens, you know, ideas that are pathogens, and I agree with you, that kids from the earliest age are being told that you can't know if someone is a boy or a girl unless you ask them. Okay, that is, that is when you take that idea that you are, you, you actually are who you feel yourself to be, that the end result is, is, is that you have to ask people if they are male or female, and you have to ask them their pronouns and that their physical biological reality is insignificant. Yeah, amazing. So so do you think, I mean, I'm asking you, I, I don't know if that, that would be a speculative response you're giving, or maybe you actually have the data as a practicing psychiatrist. Do you think that many of the ideologues behind the trans activist movement are coming from a noble place, or is there some sort of nefarious Dr. Evil uh, you know, angle to it. And the, the reason I'm saying this, before you even answer, let, let me give you what I argue in the parasitic mind. So I argue that what the commonality across all of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book is that they start off with a noble cause, which then, if you like, metamorphosizes into lunacy in support of that original you know, so if we have to murder, murder and rape truth in the service of that original noble cause, then so be it. And so let me contextualize it with a specific example. Social constructivism, as as you know, Miriam, is the idea that everything is due to a social construction. We're born, you know, empty slate, and then it's only the unique trajectory of our lives that makes us who we are. Now, that premise, while fully incorrect, is rooted in a noble, hopeful you know, ethos, which is, I'd love to think that my child could be the next Lionel Messi and the next Michael Jordan or the next Albert Einstein, that there is no innate biological differences in potentiality. We're all born equal. So that original hopeful message, completely rooted in nonsense, starts off at least with a non-nefarious noble reason. So is that what's happening with trans activism, which is we want to liberate people from the shackles of their genitalia, or is it something more nefarious? You know, that's a great question. Uh, it's a very intellectual question, so I'm not surprised that you're coming to me with that question. I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer it. I do want to say, though, that this, this book, my book, Lost in Translation, it is not... 
Uh, it is not an intellectual book. It is written for everyday moms and dads. You do not need a PhD. It is a guide out of the madness. I do explain the history of these ideas, and that's where I'm going to touch on answering you right now. But overall, it really is a very practical guide to how to manage this and how to prevent it from entering your home. So to answer your question, you know, the original idea that you are not uh, your, your biological sex, you are the social construct of what has been projected onto you by society came from John Money in 1957. Yes. And he, coined this, he coined this term gender identity. He had his own gender dysphoria. He himself was uncomfortable being a man. And so, you know, which is, which is fascinating. So he came up with a theory. And of course, this was decades before we had mapped out the human genome. This is decades before we can look at the chromosomes and see that the Y chromosome, which only men have, boys and men have, is teeming with genes that are unique to men. So back then, it was feasible with the science that we knew at that time to propose that everything was just projected from society onto a little kid before the age of three, the pink blanket, the blue blanket, the, the dolls, the toys, et cetera, et cetera, the expectations. So was John Money coming from a good place? I think that he was coming from a place of solving his own emotional issues and wanting to be as, as unlike as his father as possible. His father was an abusive, raging alcoholic who used to beat him and kill animals and beat up his mother. So, yeah, I mean, John Money did not want to be like his father. He, and he generalized that, as kids do, to mean that all men were like that. So he wanted to escape that. Now, the thing is that this idea evolved over decades. And as you know, it involved an experiment on an innocent blue-collar family with twins um, from Canada in which John Money... Uh, uh, there were these twins and one of them was circumcised. Uh, there was an accident uh, with the equipment. His penis was burned off. John Money ended up instructing this family to raise their son, biological son, as a girl. This is David Reimer, them, correct? Yeah. Telling them that it would be fine. All he needs is some surgery, some hormones, and he will be a normal, infertile, but normal, functioning, happy woman. Um, I tell the story in the book. The bottom line of that story is that it was a disaster, that this was a biological boy who from an early age was very masculine, even though he was being told 24-7 that he was a girl. He was being he was completely what we would call now socially transitioned. He was given a girl's name, pronouns and dresses, the whole thing. Everyone in his life treated him as a girl. He rejected it. He didn't know what was going on, but he rejected it. He was very masculine in his interests, in his behaviors, in the way that he moved, in his gestures. His, his classmates called him cave woman. Okay. He wanted to be a car mechanic when he was in like fourth grade. So, you know, it's very stereotypical, but the point is that 
his genetics played a huge role in his identity. Anyway, it's it's a long and very tragic and horrible story. John Money um, went forward. You know, he was abusing these these kids when they came to see him at his clinic. Um, the boys reached the age of fourteen. Uh, David the, or Brenda, as he was called, the one that was raised as a girl, was very disturbed, very emotionally disturbed, uh, not functioning well socially, academically, became suicidal, in fact, when he hit puberty and he was attracted to girls. John Money wanted him to have a surgery that would uh, construct a vagina, so-called vagina, uh, David Reamer said no way. He refused to ever go back to John Money, and he was suicidal. Finally, against John Money's advice, uh, he was informed that he was he was in fact born a man, born a male. I'm sorry, he was a, he was a boy. And he said later on, when he was interviewed years later, he said at that moment he felt such overwhelming relief. Because he realized that he's not a freak. He realized that there's not something wrong with him. He felt that he was a boy. Okay. So the takeaway message from all this, and I really do uh, recommend that your readers uh, read this story. There, there was a book written called The Boy That Was Raised as a Girl yes. by John Colapinto. It's all very well documented. But, documented. but the bottom line is that John Money... Uh, uh, used this experiment on the, this family to support his theory that we are born gender neutral, blank slates, and it's all a social construct. It's all imposed by society. And he refused, even when he knew um, David Reamer's mom wrote to him and told him what was going on uh, with her son and that they had, you know, revealed to him that he was a biological boy. Well, I shouldn't say biological. There's one kind of a boy, okay? I don't, I, don't, I don't do this whole language thing. Biological boy, transgender boy. There's boys and there's girls. So David Reamer was a boy. Um, uh, John Money was a, a, a very bad character. He abused kids. He was a pedophile. He was pro-incest. I mean, this is this not a good guy that we're talking about here. And then, and he also never went back and told the scientific community and really the, the, the world, because the, the entire world heard about this experiment, obviously, that he portrayed as a resounding success. And he portrayed as proof of his, of his theory, his gender theory. And it was anything but proof. It was anything but uh confirmation of his idea that we are born gender neutral and that biology doesn't count. So just to get back to your question, uh, I, I do believe that uh, there are activists, you know, who genuinely feel that this is, uh, uh, you know, the right thing to do for, for young kids. They feel that this is the new civil rights issue that uh, kids can be born in the wrong body. They they believe the whole thing, okay? Uh, and and they 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 become activists. They go into the schools. They're teachers. They're guidance counselors, uh, and they genuinely believe that they are saving these kids 
from their, uh, you know, their their parents who are ignorant and uh, bigots and transphobic. There are such people. There are also people who don't really care about the ethics of it. They want to make a lot of money. And the people are making tons of money, obviously. I want to remind your audience that once one of these kids starts taking puberty blockers at an early age, they might start at as young as eight. Puberty can start as young as eight or nine years old. If you're going to prevent puberty, block puberty, you're going to put these kids on these strong medications that work on the brain to prevent the changes of puberty. And almost every single child whose puberty is blocked are going to continue on to cross-sex hormones and they will be consumers of pharmaceuticals for the rest of their lives. Forget about all the surgery and how much all of that costs. Just the medication in order to maintain that uh, persona of the opposite sex, in order to uh, grow facial hair and body hair and you know muscle mass and redistribute fat and and for your voice to be lowered and all of those changes requires lifelong medication so of course there's billions that are going to be made off of this movement uh i do think that there are also those who want to see a, a new society and they want they they want to see a new they want humanity 2.0 okay humanity that is not tethered or anchored in biology biology the physical body is seen as a uh a, a restrictive state a limiting state yep. and if you can go beyond it with the help of technology pharmaceuticals etc then for sure. I mean, that's called, as you know, transhumanism. Yeah. Well, I mean, I already see all I in my, so you may or may not know that in my academic career, my scientific career, uh, I pioneered the use of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology in studying decision-making consumer behavior. And I found even, even without mentioning the word transgender, the biophobia that social scientists feel by biophobia, I mean the fear of using biology to explain human affairs is just rampant. And in the sense that most social scientists, when they sort of accept their card carrying membership in the social scientists community, abdicate the role of biology, right? What makes them social scientists is that they usually say uh, either directly or, or, you know, implicitly that what makes us humans and hence different from all other of our animal cousins is that we transcend our biology. We are cultural animals. That's, so So, how could you, Professor Saad, be using evolutionary theory to explain consumer behavior? Don't you know that evolutionary biology only applies for the mosquito, the zebra, and your dog? But how could you be using evolutionary theory to explain the human mind? And that baffled me as a young assistant professor I, I almost thought that I was in a candid camera show. Like, what do you mean? You think that when we walk around the world, we exist in a supra plane removed from our biology? Well, overwhelmingly, Miriam, social scientists would say a resounding yes. So in a sense, trans activism is solely, is solely a viral or pathogenic manifestation of this greater problem, no? 
Yes, and I think uh, I think that the point we really have to make for your audience is that you cannot deny biology without paying a price. There's a huge price that comes with this. And kids, little kids are being led to believe that the price is very minimal and that the benefits are huge. And these are kids who have underlying uh you know, issues there. They might be on the autism spectrum. They're suffering. They have anxiety and depression, eating disorders, you know, self-injury. And they're led to believe by influencers and others that are out there that, that are very aggressive in this message that you, you, you know, if, if you aren't happy with yourself, if you don't fit in, if you don't have a friend group, um, if you're unhappy with the changes of puberty, you may very well be transgender. And if you live as the opposite sex or some other category, which, you know, there's many categories now being invented besides male and female, I'm sure you're aware of that, then you will find relief right. from these issues. And so now we have so many detransitioners, the young people who went through gender affirming care, which I will define gender affirming care is the uh, the the uh, uh, the the process of immediately accepting uh, a, a child or teenagers or young adults um, uh, new identity and uh, putting them on a, a path toward medicalization. So you do first the social transition, name, pronouns, uh, appearance you know, sometimes finding the breasts and tucking male genitals, which I can explain more about that if, if, if you like. Oh, and by the way, I use that term biophobia in my book as well. Do you? Okay. Yes, I do. Cool. And it really is biophobia. It's an irrational fear and rejection of biology. So what I'm saying is that these kids who have been, quote unquote, affirmed and were socially transitioned, lived as the opposite sex, and some of them were medicalized, had mastectomies, um, you know, uh, uh, had had their appearance permanently changed uh, by hormones, cross-sex hormones and blockers, which there are serious, serious changes that, that take place. You know, when you go on blockers, you, not only does that mean that you block, you know, growing breasts or you know, all these physical changes that sexual, uh, secondary sexual characteristics, as we call them, of puberty, that's only what's, what you see, you know, it, what, what you see physically. But the, it affects every system of the body. Puberty is a process that is exquisitely uh, complex, as most biological processes are. We do not understand puberty, we're just beginning to understand what it is. And um, it affects every system of the body, including, of course, the brain. And there are vast, massive changes that take place in the brain when a child goes through natural puberty. When I say natural, that means that a girl is permitted to, to experience the surge of estrogen um, that's going to happen, you know, when, when she enters puberty and for all those years and then the same for boys the surge of, of testosterone boys need testosterone 
and girls need estrogen in order to develop normally, a, in order for their brain to mature. The brain of a 25-year-old is very different than a brain of a 10-year-old. And that's because they've gone through puberty and the centers in the brain responsible for, uh, for, for rational thinking, for uh, considering consequences, looking at the pros and cons of decisions, you know, weighing things out. That's the prefrontal cortex right behind the forehead right here. That is the last area of the brain to develop. Now, if we prevent that development, what's going to happen? They're going to continue uh, functioning as a child. Now, the proponents, the advocates of, of uh, gender affirming care would come and say at this point, well, Dr. Grossman, that's not the case because we're going to be giving, yes, we're going to block the estrogen for the girls and block the testosterone for the boys, but we're going to then go ahead and give testosterone to the girls and estrogen for the boys so that they can go through puberty. It's just the opposite sex puberty. Well, hello. We, we don't know what the outcome of that. We don't know the effects on the brain of that. That is an experiment. That is based on a small uh, study that came out of the Netherlands uh, that, was, that was undertaken in the 90s and the 2000s, a small group of young people, about 55 kids. Uh, and, and, you know, that's another story that I tell in the book. Sorry, I have to do this. Oh, do it. Do it. Lost in translation. Get it. Buy okay. It. I have to do. My publisher told me to hold it up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Feel free. Go ahead. Okay. So this is called the Dutch Protocol. And this is what affirming care is totally based on the Dutch Protocol. The Dutch Protocol has many, many issues, many problems. But most importantly, what I want to explain is that the kids that were included in this Dutch protocol, when they first started using blockers on normal children, up to that point, blockers were only used on individuals with medical disorders. So the Dutch came along and said, we're gonna use blockers on normal children. But what did they do? They only picked kids in, with using very strict criteria. One of the criteria is that they all had to have early onset, severe gender dysphoria. So, you know, early onset, we're talking about toddlerhood or, you know, uh, preschool, day in and day out, kids that were insisting that they were or want to be the opposite sex. So that's very, very different from today's kids who are either just coming into puberty or they are already in puberty, they're adolescents. And most of them had no gender dysphoria, no discomfort being male or female until that point. Plus they heard about this from the internet. They learned about this from social media, from their friends, from sex education, from their guidance counselor. That's an altogether different situation than these little kids that the Dutch ended up putting blockers on, that it was an internal process. It was, it was something going on with them psychologically uh, that, they, that they simply did not feel comfortable with their biology. That's A. B, the Dutch would not 
include any kids who had serious or let's say even significant mental health issues. You would just be out, out of the study if you had significant mental health issues. Again, that's the opposite of the kids that we're looking at now. They have extremely significant mental health issues. And what the gender affirming uh, uh, proponents are now saying, these, these zealots that are just, you know, foisting this onto us, they're saying, well, of course they have mental health issues because they're transgender and because they're being forced to live in the wrong body. Yeah. That's so you understand how upside down this is. Yeah. So in, I'm going to ask you here to uh, to see if you agree with this. And certainly as a psychiatrist, you're the right person that I should be testing this theory. So in, in the parasitic mind, I so let me let me back up. In 2010, I had written an academic paper and actually published in a medical journal where I was talking about the Darwinian mechanisms that might explain Munchausen syndrome by proxy. And for those of us who are not academics or psychiatrists, Munchausen syndrome is when I feign my own you know, medical situation to garner empathy, sympathy. Munchausen syndrome by proxy is when I have someone under my care. It could be a pet. It could be an elderly parent. Most often, it's a biological mother with her biological child who will then harm them to garner by proxy the empathy and sympathy. So having written that paper in 2010, and when I was now writing The Parasitic Mind you know, a decade later, I uh, coined the, the malady uh, collective Munchausen and collective Munchausen by, uh, by proxy to explain the orgiastic pursuit of victimology, whether it be real victimology or fake victimology. So do you think, and, and therefore then I can apply transgenderism as a form of Munchausen. Now, in the case, for example, of Charlize Theron, it could be, you know, transgenderism Munchausen by proxy because I adopt kids from Africa who are boys and then I turn all of them into girls where the statistics of that are insanely low. So do you think that that's a good framework to try to understand some of this kind of orgiastic malady that we're facing, that it's a form of Munchausen? Uh, in some cases, I have no doubt that that is that that is true. However, we have to always keep in mind when you're talking about the parents, they are being threatened that their kid is going to commit suicide if they don't go with this. So you have to be very careful here. And I have a whole chapter about parents, you know, and what it what it what they're going through, the hell that they go through when they try to resist, uh, uh, you know, re resist. Uh, accepting their child as uh, the opposite sex. But yes, I certainly believe that there are cases, probably a lot of cases, unfortunately, and that in where the mother's psychopathology um, is behind her, what did you say? Orgiastic? How did you put it? Orgiastic. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. That's that's a great term. So um, do, you, do you have so just, just forgive me for interrupting you. So typically when one of the two parents is driving the the argument that my child is transgender without knowing the data, I'm going to predict it's much more likely to be mothers than fathers. Am I right, Dr. Grossman? You're right. <laughs> you are right. 
Yes. Wow. Of course. of course, that's the case. And, you know, there's many lawsuits. I've been involved with a few cases now in court in which divorced parents are fighting it out over transitioning the kid. And it's always the dad who's fighting it. Wow. Why is that? You're a dad. Why is that? <laughs> Well, I'll put the link to my paper from 2010 that explains why it is biological mothers that are most likely to suffer from Munchausen syndrome by proxy. The reason I became interested in it is because from an evolutionary perspective, you would think the exact opposite should happen, right? Because we know that there is no such thing as maternity uncertainty for humans, but there is paternity uncertainty. So you, if you, so you would think that the fathers would be more likely to be the ones who harm their children on purpose. And yet in this case, we have the exact opposite uh, mechanism, but I want to get back since your book, as, as you said at the start of your, is not an intellectual exercise, but a practical how to, so tell us how your, your child comes to you and says, stop calling me, John, I'm Linda. What are the steps that as a caring parent, I, I want to listen to my child, but I know that it's likely a social contagion. What are the you know, prescription that I can follow to try to combat this without having social services come and take my child away from me? Yeah, which uh, thanks for mentioning that because I also have, uh, I have appendices that are written, some of them are written by attorneys and they explain to the family, what are your rights? regarding child protective services what are your rights regarding schools i mean this is in the u.s i don't know how much of it would apply to canada but parents have constitutional rights to uh, be in charge of their child's education and so i'm providing parents ahead of time okay once your kid comes to you and says mom i'm not your son i'm your daughter you know you're already that's that's already that that's going to be pretty tough uh, I do give a lot of advice for those parents, including the first conversation. Okay, so I want to provide parents before that conversation ever happens. I want them to have a model uh, uh, parent-child conversation, how to deal with that request when your child comes to you and says this. And it's a lengthy chapter, uh, and, and, and the parent and the child go back and forth, and a lot of issues come up. But the overriding message is, number one, to try not to freak out. You can freak out later. Try to stay calm uh, and be curious. So what you, what you want to do in that first conversation is to ask a lot of questions and to be curious and to tell your child, I see that this is important to you. So it's also important to me. I'm going to, I'm going to read everything I can get my hands on so that I can understand this better. And we are going to help you. However, at the same time, I am not using a different name. I am not using different pronouns. Now, I remind parents that they have to be the adult. Adults have to be living in reality. Emotionally healthy people live in reality. Uh, so they have to represent reality. And re the reality is that their son cannot be turned into their daughter. And their daughter cannot be turned into their son. And I, I give them the confidence 
you know, I give them the biology. And again, you don't need a PhD. I explain everything in a way that anyone could read and understand that this is simply an impossibility. And that while there are extremely rare kids who, uh, you know, fit into that category of childhood onset gender dysphoria, A, if their kid is only coming to them later on, you know, as a pre-adolescent or an adolescent or young adult, they're not in that category. They're not, you know, I explained that gender dysphoria is a, is, is a symptom. For example, like fever, fever is a symptom. It can occur in many different kinds of conditions. You can have an infection, you can have, uh, I don't know, you, a cancer can cause a fever. I mean, there's, there's many different conditions that cause fevers. You can have an autoimmune disease, but you don't, you don't put every, all these cases to, to lump them together and say, oh, they're all a fever. This is how we treat them. And that's what gender affirming care does. It takes every single case of per individual, whether it's a four-year-old or a 50-year-old, okay? A four-year-old girl who's autistic or a 50-year-old man who's been a cross-dresser for 30 years and says, oh, you know, this is the same, the same thing. That is, that is not what we do in medicine. Um, we look at, at, at uh, we, we, we look at the symptom and we look at what's causing it. And so with these kids that have gender dysphoria as adolescents and they develop it quickly, what's called rapid onset gender right. dysphoria, I explain what that's all about. I educate parents. So with rapid onset gender dysphoria, you see their new identity is a solution to something. That's the way we have to look at it. Right. What is it a solution to? Is it a girl who is fearful of, of, of becoming sexualized, you know, getting a woman's body and then, you know, and hates the way that men are looking at her? Is she afraid of being abused? Is she attracted to other girls? Does she think perhaps that if she's a boy, then she's heterosexual, you know, then she's attracted to girls? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. I mentioned John Money a few, a few minutes ago. John Money did not want to be his father. He unfortunately was led to believe that this male model of masculinity, that's, that's what being a man needs. He didn't understand that there's many different kinds of men. There are gentle men. There are wonderful, gentle, patient, uh, emotionally expressive and supportive men. He didn't have to hate his biology in order to be that way. So what I'm trying to say, what did you ask me? It doesn't matter. This is great. Keep going. Okay. What I, what I want parents. Oh, oh, you asked oh, yeah. me about the first one. The, so the, the first recipe one, for how to handle it as a parent. All right. So I do give a lot of practical tips on how to handle it. But even more importantly, I want to reach the parents who have yet to go through this that it may be in their future. And I'm telling them that they can immunize their families against this social contagion, against, as you would call this pathogenic idea, right? That's right. the, that's the, right? Exactly. So you can immunize your family how, from an early age, I want children to know that they are in the right body, their body is perfect, that they, they became, they were, 
that that sex is established at conception. So little kids can be told way before they were born, the instant that they that they were created, that instant, nine months before they were born, they were either a boy or a girl. And that is permanent and that can never change. And that's perfect. Now, if they happen to be a boy that has more feminine interests, fine. That's fine. There are all kinds of boys. And if it's a girl that has stereotypical, you know, sports and STEM and doesn't like to wear dresses, big deal. Right. Kids are being told now, you know, these um, stereotypes that in my generation, we were fighting those stereotypes. And now those stereotypes are coming back by the gender ideologues. And they're telling kids, well, you know what? You're a girl. You like science. You don't like you know, reading and you don't, you're not into boys and makeup, you know, you, you might be a boy. Can you imagine such a horrific message to give to a child that they're born in the wrong body? Wow. What, what percentage of it? Maybe there isn't actual objective data on this, but if I can ask you to speculate, if we look at all psychiatrists, say, you know, American Psychiatric Association, and we were to poll them, as to, you know, I am totally for the transgender, you know, positions versus I'm in the Miriam Grossman camp. Do we have a sense of, you know, how much the parasitic ideas have spread amongst psychiatrists? Are most people on your side or are you the pariah that needs to be, you know, that needs to lose her medical license? Where, where do we, where are we standing in these parasitic infestations? Okay. Well, in speaking out and in writing about it, I am a pariah. And also in refusing to affirm kids in my office um, to a certain degree, not a pariah, but, you know, there aren't that many of us. Um, Is it because they're too afraid to speak, but they're on your side or are they actually believing in their nonsense? Okay, I understand your question. and And I have been dreaming for years of how could we do an anonymous poll among my colleagues in psychiatry and psychology. I would so love to do that. Um, It hasn't been done. And I want your audience to understand that when these associations, these medical groups come out with statements, policy statements and so forth, they have not, they have, it does not represent a consensus. I'm going to answer your question in a minute, Dr. Saad. Okay. I really am. But I want your listeners to know that when, when, you know, for example, Admiral Dr. Rachel Levine of Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C., stand up, stands up and says there is a medical consensus that kids have to be affirmed and have to be given this, be put on this medical assembly line. There is no such consensus. There is no consensus whatsoever. There is no referendum of the members of these academies and these associations. Now, to answer your question, I believe, you know, the big surprise, the younger you are, the more likely that, you you know, if you're a young doctor who's, you know, gone through the indoctrination as part of their training, um, they're more likely to be indoctrinated. But I will tell you this, the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics, 67,000 members, um, they came out in 2018 with a policy statement that, by the way, was written by one pediatrician. And it was just a, a regurgitation of the, the, the whole thing, you know, the whole ideology, you know, this, the, all the language, cisgender and, you know, non-binary and, you know, the whole thing, the kids know best, you know, 
give them the blockers, every the whole deal. So they came out with this in 2018. And, and, and in the past few years, there have been groups of pediatricians that are members of the American Academy of Pediatrics who are calling for a, a you know a a, a a debate a, a um, you know they're saying we have to look at this listen guys you know we don't have the evidence to be saying this and um, the way our policy statement stands right now we are sterilizing children and so there have been proposals that have been put uh, forth. Uh, you know, within that bureaucratic system that the American Academy of Pediatrics has. And again, I explain it in in my book, what's going on, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And there was 20, 24 pediatricians signed a proposal simply saying, we have to look at this more closely. We have to look at the evidence because um, all these foreign countries, Sweden, Finland, uh, Norway, uh, you know, England, they have all done reviews of the literature and they have all done a 180 and they are no longer uh, uh, promoting, well, they practically banning, basically banning these medical interventions that we are putting kids on like candy. Now, I'm getting back to, I haven't forgotten your question, okay? Um, during COVID, uh, there was th this proposal for the American Academy of Pediatrics was put out there to all the members to see how many would approve of such a proposal. Uh, you know, just to look at it, just to look at their policy on gender affirming care. 80%, 80% of the membership, I hope I'm getting this right. I think I'm getting, I know that it's 80%, yeah, was, 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 uh, would support the Academy uh, you know, going back and looking at this again and re-examining it and perhaps coming out with a different policy statement. But this proposal keeps on just being ignored. Okay, what's going on, I want parents to know that pediatricians, psychiatrists, endocrinologists who, who are not comfortable with this and who oppose it um, are being silenced. They're just being ignored, silenced. They're not given a platform. They write articles. The articles aren't published. They try to have, um, you know, panel discussions at the annual meetings of these associations. They are not given the opportunity even to have a panel discussion. So uh, our, our opinions are just simply being squashed. And this is happening in the medical associations that you trust. And I don't blame parents for trust. I used to trust. My, I mean, are you kidding? When you go to medical school and you go do your training in any field of medicine, you just, it is inculcated in you that you trust your medical associations. You turn to them for guidance. And sadly, we cannot do that in this area. What do you think, maybe this will be the last question because I am I want to be mindful of your time. And then if if possible, if you have a minute or two, I'd like to ask you a, a sort of somewhat unrelated question just for my subscribers. It'll be like a 30 second to 60 second thing. But last question in this interview, what do you think has allowed you, so it, to use the the parlance from my book, I the in the parasitic mind in the last chapter, I talk about activating 
your inner honey badger, right? Because the honey badger is a very, very fierce animal that doesn't take nonsense from anybody. I mean, adult lions are afraid of this animal that's the size of a small dog. And so when I tell people to activate their inner honey badger, um, I don't mean it, it's not a call to violence, but it's it's a call for ideological defense of your positions. You certainly are, Dr. Grossman, a honey badger. Is this something that you are born with and therefore we can't, you know, inculcate in others? Or is there a way for us to take your message, let's say in Lost and Transnation, and create an army of honey badgers? I think that there is an element of genetics, at least in my part. I uh, Thinking back to my father, may he rest in peace, a Holocaust survivor and a fighter, a fighter for truth. Um, so I think, I mean, genetic or having to do with what kind of home you're raised in, but certainly you can create honey badgers. Absolutely. I think it's a question of um, people recognizing that, that they're not alone that they are, you know, they're not isolated, sitting at home alone and just thinking, what the heck is going on with this? You know, am I the only person in the world that thinks that this is insane and, and horrible? And, and you know, I get so many emails and people have so much relief to know, you know, to hear my voice and the voices of others. I mean, I'm far from the only person, but, you know, and, and it empowers them. It empowers them. And I, and even if it's something relatively small, you don't have to go out and write a book. But if you can just get on your social media and say, look, you know, listen to this lady, you know, buy her woman. Listen to this woman, I should say, right? This <laughs> you know, cisgender woman, cisgender. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't accept the language. Um, so, so. Anyway, how do you know without asking me that I'm cisgender? <laughs> That's true. For, forgive me for being presumptuous. Uh, stay on the line. Please go out. I'm speaking now to my to my audience. Please go out. Tomorrow it drops. Lost in Trans Nation. You will not be disappointed. Miriam, such a pleasure having you. Stay on the line. I'd like to ask you one more question for my subscribers. What a okay. delight and pleasure. I'm, I'm going to quickly rush out and follow you on Twitter. You've been a delight and a true honor to speak to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you.